there was a study done in the Netherlands. They studied people who had been on vacation. And when you think vacation, when you're talking about going on vacation, when you're on vacation, you always think, oh, this, uh, this thing that I'm going to do that's going to be fun and relaxing and going to be a blessing to my life. And you know what they found? That it wasn't. The vacation wasn't really that cool for most people. That people would go on vacation and the, the vacation itself, well, it was all right. But what was really good, what was really a blessing, what was really helpful to them was planning vacation. That anticipating vacation was more fun than the actual vacation itself. That as they were planning to go on vacation, getting ready for it, and I'm not talking about the five minutes before you go when you're packing and going nuts and trying to find your tickets for the plane. I'm talking about the eight weeks before the vacation when you're thinking about where you're going, you're making the arrangements, you're getting ready to go. They, the, the study showed that for up to eight weeks, the anticipation of vacation was a blessing in people's lives and made them happier and more joyful and more relaxed than actually going on vacation. For almost all groups, only one group that wasn't, wasn't more blessed by the preparation than the actual vacation. And that was the person who said that when they went on vacation, they were very relaxed. So those of us who tend to cram our vacations with five million things to do, we wax. Just we wax. Because it's the, that in that anticipation of vacation, you're actually beginning to relax into it. What happens when you come out of vacation is you start anticipating all the work that you didn't have done while you were gone, and now you're stressing out about getting that. It's the punishment for going on vacation. Everybody knows that. But we're talking about anticipation. Hence the ketchup bottle. If you're of a certain age, you know what that ketchup bottle means, right? Anticipation, right? That's anticipating. Waiting for something with joy and expectancy. Waiting for something in, in hope and gladness. Anticipation. For the joyful. Now, you can have negative anticipation, right? You can be waiting to have a kidney removed. Right, and you can be anticipating the pain too, and we do lots of that. But I, I don't. I want to talk about the other kind of anticipation today. I want to talk about the positive side, the joy of anticipating something, looking forward to something. Um, I wait patiently for the Lord. The psalmist said, "My soul expectantly waits, and his in his words do I hope. I expectantly wait. Do you expectantly wait? You are expecting good things from God. Are you just waiting for the hammer to drop at the end?" You see, this is kind of the, this seems to be the, the pool that we swim in. Most of us find ourselves kind of expecting God to pull some trick on us at the end and say, Ha, I'm kidding, you're not getting in. We kind of expect Him to be a little mean, kind of, kind of like our worst elementary school teacher. We just expect Him to do something at the end that's going to be bad. And that is not a biblical picture of God. That is a completely non-biblical picture of God. It's, it's sort of the character, caricature of God that the culture has painted. Over the years, the culture has painted a, a worse and worse picture of God. It's said over and over again, you can't really trust Him. You can't really have faith in Him. You can't, you can't really expect good things from Him. You just have to watch out. Be wary. Be careful. 
But what I want to talk about today is we have a good father. He's amazing. And he's trying to bless us even now. All right? I wait expectantly for the Lord. And in his words do I hope. I love this quote from Winnie the Pooh. Well, said Pooh, what I like best, and then he had to stop and think, because although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before you began to eat it, which was better than when you were. But he didn't know what it was called. A moment before you began to eat it, that was even better than when you actually did. Maybe all of us should just stop, take a breath, and look at our food for a minute. You know, we're driving down the road, half of us, unwrapping something and shoveling it in our face as we're trying to not run over cars and people that are out on the traffic with, in traffic with us. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should just get in the practice of stopping and taking it in for a second and anticipating let yourself salivate. Sometimes I think we jump on this thing so fast we don't even have an opportunity for our body to get ready to eat. You want to go someplace where you can anticipate your food? Go to Leatherby's Ice Cream Park. There we go. Watch as other people get theirs. It comes out bit by bit, and you see someone orders a Sunday unknowing, unaware. They're uninitiated at Leatherby's, and they think they're just going to get a Sunday, like Baskin Robbins, for $27. And then the ordinary, normal, everyday hot fudge Sunday comes rolling out at Leatherby's. They bring you a plate, because it's going to drip all over everywhere. You want to anticipate your food, sit there and watch other people get theirs. You order yours and then you watch as, as somebody else gets theirs and this one comes and that one comes and you go, uh-oh. Uh-oh. I, we went there once with our brother-in-law and he looked at thing and there was this thing called uh, Rich's Dish of ice cream. Don't order Rich's Dish. It's 16 scoops of ice cream. Rich apparently is an ice cream lover. We had to tell him, no, 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 don't order that. Because that's Rich's dish of ice cream. Anticipation is almost better than the actual event. Anticipation can be almost better than the actual event. Now, we're going to do a quick review of some things. We talked about this. We've been talking about this for weeks. We've been talking about Israel being taken off into captivity in Babylon. Back in the Old Testament, Israel got so nasty, so ugly, so bad, their representation of God had gone so far off the rails that God actually sent them to camp. He sent them to Babylon, where they were going to live for 70 years, during which 
they were going to need to figure out what it meant to follow God. They had gotten so far off, they were unrecognizable as followers of God. They were completely, people who were trying to figure out how to get to God went to them and couldn't find him because they weren't worshiping him. They weren't involved with him. They were doing completely other things. And so God sent them off to Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And while they were there for those 70 years, they were told that was the time frame and they anticipated returning home. 70 years is a lifetime. An entire generation of Israelis passed away in Babylon. An entire group of them who had, who had gotten so completely off the rails that they didn't even know God anymore. Their children would be the ones who returned. There would be a few old folks who would make it through the transition, but they were young when they arrived and they were elderly when they returned. And the children who would inherit this promise, this new land, they were the ones who were going to start fresh. I want to talk about the end of last week, striving to remain faithful while we wait on to becoming anticipators of what's coming. We just want to be faithful. We just want to, we just want to hang in until you get here. I want to talk about it. Not just hanging on and hanging in, but anticipating what's happening. Anticipating with joy what's coming. Now, we talked last week. This is a little bit of a review. Some of God's promises have a long time window, right? Some of God's promises have a really long time window. Adam was told that God's seed would come and defeat Satan. It took thousands of years for Jesus to come the first time. From Adam to Jesus, thousands of years for Jesus to show up on the scene and actually do at the cross what he had promised, defeat Satan. Abraham was given the promise of a son. He was a century old when this happened. That whole, that, that entire picture doesn't sound like a blessing to me. He was a hundred years old. And by the way, when, when he has his last child, he's like 115. Keep, go read your Bible. You'll find out he had more children after this wife dies. He has another wife. And he has more children after that. Midianites come out of that group. The movements of God are very complex. So if, if you've been expecting something from God, understand <clears throat> that God doesn't work on your time frame. He doesn't work on your normal processes. We've talked here before about God moving at the speed of the farm. The Bible talks about you being planted like a seed and growing up. The only thing that grows up fast are radishes. And, you know, radishes. Takes a long time to grow a redwood tree. Which do you want to be? A radish or a redwood tree? God's time frames are longer. Things move with God at the speed of the farm as things ripen and grow and develop. The speed of the farm. That's the expectation of your life. Understand that God's time frames are longer. You can anticipate joyful Things, great things to come, even if they're distant, even if they're long way off, even if you're expecting them in a time frame that's bigger than you normally would like. And God's movements can be very complex. A lot of moving parts on this chessboard. Billions of people on the planet, lots of stuff going on. I'll give you a quick pitch. Now, here's just Israel returning home, okay? Seventy years have passed. What's God doing during those seventy years? What's it going to take to get them reestablished at home? So... They've been hauled off. 
Their land has been flattened, repopulated, and they're going to go back, start over, rebuild it, reestablish it, repopulate it themselves, reestablish the temple, reestablish Jerusalem, reestablish the cities, restart as the people who follow and represent God. What happens during the process? God moves on the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus, and then a later king, Darius, then a later king, Xerxes, then a later king, Artaxerxes. It's over a hundred years in the process of just moving kings, just moving the king around the chessboard. A hundred years of God moving on the heart of one king after another. Cyrus, send him home. Uh, Darius, let them build the temple. Xerxes, let Ezra go. Artaxerxes, let Nehemiah go. These people are are moving with God for a hundred years just to get reestablished. Seventy years of waiting to go home. A hundred years of getting it built and reestablished and strengthened and good foundations under it. And all that time, God's moving on different kings in different ways. He used Isaiah, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, just to name the primary parts in this, in this movement, for 200 years. Just the primary prophets and, and, and individuals involved in this, Isaiah, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, over 200 years, God is moving those who follow him to shape what's going to happen. One of those guys is a prophet who speaks of Cyrus a hundred years before he's born. One of those ladies gets to be queen under Artaxerxes when he kicks out Vashti, his first wife. And she's told by her uncle, perhaps you were called by God for such a time as this. God's moving big pieces and lots of things are happening. He works with political policy and intrigue throughout Persian and Babylonian empires. Stop for a sec. Are you a little weirded out about the political process right now? You can just admit it. I think we all are, right? We're just a little weirded out about all the crazy stuff that's going on. Some stuff 20 years ago you thought never happened in America. Some wild things are going on in the political process right now. If you're a little weirded out by the whole thing, we wax. God is still on his throne. He is still God. He didn't give up because 27 people ran for office this last year. He is still God. And if he can work with these guys, He can work with anybody. Egyptian rebellion, Samaritan rebellion directly impact Israel's being able to rebuild the temple and reestablish Jerusalem. The Egyptians rebel. He sends in Ezra because he needs an ally in that region. The Samaritans rebel. He sends in Nehemiah to put a cap on, make him governor over that region to sort of mellow out the whole thing that's going on. The very people God needed to establish what was going on with Israel, the king sends back. Because he needs an ally in the region. He's moving with political processes that don't look like what you want. But God is not giving up because politicians make bad choices. The same God who did all that has made you a big promise. Right? He's made you the big promise. Society in in big chunks, big swaths of of the society has kind of poo-pooed this whole idea. (laughs) Jesus is coming. Ah! Silliness. Fables for old men. Foolishness. 
But he made you a promise. While Jesus was on the planet, while Jesus, who we know is a real historical figure, right? We know the crucifixion dramatically changes the 12 disciples who are all scared, all kind of running for the hills when it happens. But when it finishes, when the resurrection takes place, when they meet Jesus renewed, restored, and resurrected, when those guys run into him alive, it transforms who they are. And they face crucifixion, and they face persecution, they face kings, and they face others, and they are not at all worried about it. Scared? Probably. Empowered? Absolutely. Got a lot of explaining to figure out how that happened if Jesus didn't actually rise. While he was on the earth, shortly before he left, shortly before he was crucified, he says to his disciples and the rest of his followers, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the big promise, right? That's the big one that's been, been hanging around for the last 2,000 years. We've been, we've been on this long timeline of our own. We've been on this long timeline of our own. The church has been on a long, a long expectant timeline and generation after generation after generation, beginning with the very first one, said any time now, he's coming. If you read the disciples' stories carefully, if you read Paul's letters carefully, you can see that they're anticipating Jesus coming in their lifetime, did he? Nope, second generation was expecting him to come in their lifetime. Did he? Nope, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still saying he's going to come, he's going to come. He might come in my lifetime, right? You're in an Adventist church today. Adventist. A church whose very name speaks to the expectation of Jesus coming. We get weary and waiting we get weary in waiting 10 minutes in a line. We get weary in waiting a half hour in traffic. We get weary in waiting pretty quick. What I want to talk about is to learn to anticipate. 70 years Israel was in, 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 in Babylon when it started to wind down. The prophet Daniel says, Lord, I've looked at, I've looked at the word. I've, I've read this prophet Jeremiah. 70 years are about up. We're at 67. We've got three more. We're out of here. Come on, God. Show up. Do your thing. People have been saying that to God a lot. As, this, as these 2,000 have passed, we're standing there with Israel saying, the Messiah should come soon, right? The Messiah should show up soon, right? And we're, we're starting to look for, for, for pieces that would, would, would develop that. I mean, there are people who say, oh, Reagan's president, Jesus is coming. Kennedy's president, Jesus is coming. World War II, Jesus is coming. Moonshot, Jesus is coming. And evangelists and prophets and preachers have been coming up and saying this all the time. What I'm saying is Jesus is coming. No question. They were all right. They just had their timing off. The Apostle Paul was right. Jesus will return. But he had his timing off. We don't know what puzzle pieces God is moving around. We do know a couple things about it. God said, I'm not coming until the last one who will say yes says yes. I'm not coming until the last one of my kids gets in. That's when I come. The gospel has to be preached to the whole world. Why? Because people need to know. People need to know they have an option. They have an opportunity. Then I'll come. You know, in my life, I expect Jesus to come. 
If he doesn't, I'm going to go to sleep. Kind of like baptism. Buried. You know what the next thing I see is? Jesus coming. Works for me. I'm not sure I want to be on the layaway plan, but if I am, I'm okay with it. I'd like to be awake when it all happens. But awake as the fireworks go off isn't bad. And it would be cool to be awake when all the buildup's happening. But, you know, if they wake you up for the fireworks at the end, still a cool show. Jesus made a promise to us. That promise has lingered for over 2,000 years now. Don't grow weary in waiting, but learn to anticipate his coming. Back to Psalm 130. I am, I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. When I was a kid, we used to go backpacking. We'd go backpacking up in the Sierras near Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, we found out, was where they took the bad bears from Yosemite and docked them, dropped them. So the bears that were used to people going into their camp, stealing their stuff, messing with things, those bears got transported up to where we used to go backpacking. So we would spend shifts during the night, three, four hours at a time, sitting by the fire, watching for bears. Mostly you're listening for bears. Because you're sitting by a fire looking at light, and it's dark all around you. And so when you look up from the light, you can't see anything. We should have all faced away from the fire. Then we could have maybe seen something. But there was something about that fire that made us feel more comfortable. So you sat there in the night with a flashlight and a fire, usually by yourself, waiting for a bear. Man, your hearing gets really good at that point. And they did come occasionally. You'd turn on your flashlight, shoot it in the direction of a sound, and you'd see eyes. You start screaming, yelling, throwing things at the eyes. Bambi's out there. When the sun began to rise and you could begin to see the things around you, it was a gift from God. I wait, counting on the Lord, like a sentry waits for the dawn. When the sun finally comes up and you can begin to see the landscape, the joy begins to build in you, anticipating the sunlight, anticipating the light. As you wait for Jesus to fulfill a 2,000-year-old promise, are you nervous? Are you bored? Are you tired of waiting? Or are you anticipating? Anticipation is excitement waiting eagerly for something you know is going to happen. When the sun begins to rise, you know the dawn is coming. When that, when that first bit of dusk begins, and when that, that morning just bare elements of dawn begin to turn the, the blackness into dark gray, it just begins to build an interest and an excitement in you. It's coming. The dawn is coming. The sun is rising. I'm going to be okay. I made it. I didn't get eaten today. Now, we never got eaten 
A lot of our stuff did, but we never did. We didn't leave anybody out there in parts. The psalmist continues, Lord, if, I kept a re- if you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness. Why is he anticipating God? Because God isn't scary to him because he understands God offers forgiveness. When that dawn arises, it's not the dawn of your punishment. It's the dawning of God's mercy. He continues, I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. He understands. He knows. He's read the story. He's read the word of God. Then he says to his friends, Oh, Israel. Oh, my friends. Oh, my countrymen. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is unfailing love. You see, if the one you're anticipating is one you love, it's a fun day. I have grandchildren. When my grandchildren are coming, when I know they're going to be present, I begin to anticipate them. Those of you who are grandparents know this, right? When your grandkids are coming, there's, there's just a little kernel of joy that begins to bubble in you. You know, the back burner of your heart starts to warm up a little bit and you get a little bit of bubbling in the pot. When your grandchildren are coming, you get just a little excited about that. You start to anticipate their arrival. I have children. One of my children lives in Cleveland, Ohio, of all the places on God's green earth. Recently, we drove into Cleveland, and as we got closer to my son's house, as we got closer to where he lived, as we started to get in the neighborhood, even though we're driving through Cleveland to get there, I started to anticipate. Same thing. There's some bubbling on my heart. Just just talking about it, I start to feel that that joy, that that you know what it is, right? That that buildup of joy and excitement as you anticipate the, the connection with somebody you love. I have a wife. I chased her for 10 years before she married me. I spent a lot of time anticipating. And when I'm, I'm separated from my wife, and I know we're going to be back together, when sort of the clock begins to tick towards that arrival, when I'm flying home or she's coming home or I'm driving home, when that moment of our family reconnectedness, when our, our, our relational reconnectedness, our, our heart, our love reconnectedness, when that begins to happen, there's a little bubbling in the back burner of my heart that begins to, begins to roll into an anticipatory boil. You get it? When the one you're anticipating is one who loves you and you love, sort of cranks up the heat. It sort of cranks up the heat. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. This, this is the last bit, but get this bit. We, through the, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Don't take righteousness by faith as a theological term. We hope for righteousness, and we hope by faith. 
We hope for righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Let's stop for a second. If you're unfamiliar with scriptural arguments, this is a big deal fighting right here. Circumcision was the mark of being a Jewish uh, insider. You were part of the Israeli family. You were, you were part of the family of God. You, you were circumcised. You're one of us. And Paul says, nope. Nope. Being sealed in the covenant or not sealed in the covenant, not a point, not an issue. Neither of them matters. What avails or neither avails anything but faith working through love. Lest you immediately start thinking about the work you have to do on God's behalf, I want you to get the word working straight in your head. The word is the Greek word energos, from which we get the word energy. You know what starts the fire under the pot that's boiling in the back of your heart? Love. You know what starts the fire on the pot in the back of your heart when you're anticipating the return of God? Knowing he loves you and learning to love him. When you understand his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, how badly he wants to take you home to rid you of sin and sorrow and suffering and pain and death. When you understand how badly he wants to get you home where everything will be a blessing to you. When you understand that. When you get that. The end of this 2,000 year waiting period starts to get kind of exciting. You start to anticipate. You start to... You start to feel that something in your stomach. And you start waiting for the moment when the clouds roll back and the heavens open and Jesus appears. And you get to look up and say, yeah, baby, here he comes. Or as the King James says, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we have pressure everywhere to be fearful of you, to doubt your even existence from all sides in all settings. Teach us to have faith to trust you.